Hey, and welcome back to Dorm Room Histories, the history of China. Last week, we covered the Xia Dynasty, a time period that's true existence is, well, really anyone's guess. But this week, we will begin to look at the Shang Dynasty, which was the second of the three pre-imperial Chinese dynasties. The Shang would be an immensely inspirational period for figures not so far off in the future for this story. Kongzi, who, well, we know as Confucius, was enamored by this period. And so was Sunzi, who you might know as the author of The Art of War. But those are stories for a later date. Lastly, before I start, I have come to the conclusion that a website would be the best way for me to reach my listeners and enhance the overall listening experience. Especially when it comes to shows like this. Look, they take place long, long ago in a place far, far away. And sometimes listeners can become disconnected from the story if they can't put a face to a name or an image or location to a place. So more updates to come with that in the near future. Oh, and quickly, my next episode of Dorm Room History, The Praetorian Guard, will be out finally in the next week or two. So I'm sorry about the delay, but that'll be coming out in the near future. But without further ado, The History of China, Episode 3. Into Reality, Really. Before I dive into the events here of the early Shang, I need to explain a bit more when I say the Shang have surviving documents. Look, while it is clear from the archaeological record that they did largely exist as we were told in a macro sense by the historical records, what is different from the Xia's historical records and the Shang's is that the Shang's are backed by their own writings. The Shang story is not just told 2,000 years after the fact but instead written down in their own right. Look, was the Shang history written down in chronological order in big, easy-to-read volumes? No, of course not. But their early writing techniques give us a lot of assurance today in the sense that, oh yes, this ruler was actually real, and he did rule from year Y to year Z because these writings, though incomplete, through process of elimination, show us that these facts remain true. What we really have from the Xiang are called dragon bones. In the 1800s, our 1800s that is, people living where the old Xiang capital used to be seemingly had an endless supply of these peculiar bones which with almost illegible engravings on them, and the people were selling them as dragon bones in medicinal shops. And yes, soon after, being sold in tourist shops. But archaeologists soon realized that these were probably turtle shells or cattle scapula bones, and dated them back to the Xiang dynasty. Upon realizing this, they quickly dug up as many as they could to try and analyze them. The engravings, as I said, were illegible, because while related, Chinese back then is not like Chinese now, in a language sense, that is. Deciphering what was written was hard, and it was time-consuming. But it has been more or less deciphered, giving us an in-depth look at the Shang from, well, the Shang's eyes. These bones would have an issue of the day engraved on them. Then, with the emperor and the help of an interpreter, they would crack the bones, and they would essentially be interpreted like a magic eight ball, based on the way the bones cracked. Is it going to rain this week? Well, let's see. Bones say, it will. And look, even better for us, 
oftentimes we have verifications of the results being right on other bones, so further allowing the Shang to come to life in the historical sense. So now we might know, well, on this day of this week of this lunar cycle, this question was asked and this answer was given, and then on the next dragon bone, it says, this did really indeed happen on this and this date. So while it's not ideal and it's not a clearly written history, it is unbelievably important for us in understanding the Xiang Dynasty. And while the writing clearly points to the fact that the Chinese were a highly literate society, especially for that age, none of the likely bamboo or bark writings most likely used back then have survived to today. With the clarification now of how well the Shang were most definitely real, and that you need to take much less of that proverbial pinch of salt for their story as you did for the Xia, let's get into it. As I mentioned last episode, the Xia started with Yu the Great. He was the man who stopped the great floods, dredged the river, and became one of the most enamored emperors in Chinese history. But by the end of the dynasty that had started so brightly, seemingly only self-serving, drunken, and gluttonous rulers came to power. And the last ruler of the Xia was Emperor Jie. But look, he is still on the border between the nearly mythological Xia and the very real Shang. So take some of this particular guy's story with a small grain of salt, actually. Birth named Liu Gui, Emperor Jie was, in short, well, a pretty terrible ruler. He was especially cruel to his own people. He was hardly the understanding type. And he lived an extremely lavish lifestyle full of slaves, alcohol, and music. But look, he was not cut from a different cloth from other despotic rulers. He hated criticism, and people were afraid of him, etc., etc. The song remains the same. And yeah, he also moved the capital, built a brand new lavish palace with, yes, the bill being footed by the people. Oh, and he tore down buildings that the people loved. So, yeah, he's not off to a great start. But here's one interesting thing, however, which was a first for ancient China that Emperor Jie brought to the table, because Emperor Jie began using the Nian, which was a big chair which upon he sat while his servants would hold it up and moved it around wherever he wanted. Yeah, he was sitting in a chair as his servants moved it around all over the city and all over the empire. And here... Here's an interesting, albeit completely ridiculous, anecdote about this emperor. According to an ancient Chinese historian, which, yes, wrote about 1500 years after the fact, Emperor Jie was very corrupted by his infatuation with one of his concubines, Mo Shi. She was, for all purposes here, unbelievably beautiful, but the issue was, she lacked any real moral compass. She had no boundaries, and she loved to be entertained whether it was by music or jugglers, you name it. But her one true vice, which was, yes, shared by Emperor Jie, was alcohol. Apparently, she had Emperor Jie make a giant lake, filled with not water, but entirely of wine. The two both sailed about in their alcohol lake and had an orgy of drunken men and naked women that bathed and drank with them. And after they had their fun, she commanded 3,000 slaves to drink the lake dry, only to laugh when they all drowned. While crazy, let's be real, that definitely did not happen. 
but it's a great story nonetheless. Also, Emperor Jie was an eater, and if alive today in this era of history, he would definitely be in the King Louis XVI of France echelon of Team Big Eats. Allegedly, it took hundreds of workers in total to prepare his meals, which, look, featured fish from the Far East, seasonings from all over the empire. And by the way, if you messed up his meal in some way or another, you died. And as I mentioned before, Jia loved drinking. But if you couldn't get him enough wine, well, yeah, you died. Oh, and when he drank, he made it a requirement that somebody get on all fours and let him ride them like a horse. Even one time going so far as to make a high-ranking chancellor be his horse. But after an hour or so, the chancellor's arms began to give out. And well, yeah, he obviously was killed. Lastly, Emperor Jia started a lot of wars over a lot of petty reasons. While I've given a lot of credence to what Emperor Jia has done, he was by no means the first bad emperor. But he was the last straw for the people of the Xia dynasty. As an emperor, he ruled a dynasty made up of individual kingdoms, in some cases, dozens of smaller territories or kingdoms. Emperor Jia and the Xia dynasty held what is called suzerainty over these kingdoms, rendering them more as tributary states, if anything else. Hardly a unified kingdom, to put it bluntly. But one of these states was the Shang Kingdom, led by none other than Tang of Shang. Tang of Shang recognized that Jia mistreated his people horribly. And yes, of course, Tang of Shang used this as a way to convince other people to flock to his banner. In one speech, Tang of Shang said that creating chaos, though, was not what he wanted. Look, I don't want to cause trouble. I don't want to cause war. But given the terror of Emperor Jia, he had no other choice but to follow the mandate of heaven and use this opportunity to overthrow the Xia. And as a little cherry on top, he also pointed out that even Jia's own military generals would not obey his orders. So over the next few years, Tang of Shang and his Shang kingdom's power continued to grow. And by the 26th year of Emperor Jia's reign, the Shang kingdom had conquered the Wen kingdom. But two years later, Emperor Jia threw the Kunwu territory and all of its soldiers right back at Shang. Because look, this was not everybody and the Shang kingdom versus Emperor Jia. Because there were many kingdoms with their own goals, which aligned in seemingly infinite ways. So while Shang of Tang's goal with his kingdom was to overthrow Emperor Jia and the Xia dynasty, Tang of Shang and his Shang kingdom had to get over the roadblock that were other kingdoms. And in this case, the Kun Wu. So he quickly had to turn his attention to the Kun Wu, beat them back, and continued on expanding. And look, it seems as if alliances here aren't a thing. And you really just had to go out there and forcibly beat each kingdom in the field of combat to get them to flock to your banner. Emperor Jia then threw the Gu and Wei territory soldiers at Tang of Shang, but only for those territories and their soldiers to be completely and utterly absorbed by the Shang Kingdom. As more and more kingdoms were taken over by Tang of Shang, the decisive battle was clearly fast approaching. But look, 
Tongafshang's troops had been fighting nonstop all over the place for years, and they needed a boost of morale. Think about Alexander the Great's troops. Yes, they conquered. They never lost. Got all the way to India, but eventually their tank runs out, and they look at their leader and say, this might be the end of the road. So Tong, stopping his soldiers from having a full-on mutiny, and in an attempt to boost their morale, gave his now-famous Tong's Pledge. And guess what? The soldiers loved it, and they got all fired up again, and now the field was set for a decisive battle. Now, the battle is going to take place at Mingtiao, a place in central China. The day of the decisive battle, though, was filled with thunderstorms, and the armies clashed head-on in the thunder and rain. What a movie scene that is. The grand finale battle, the decisive moment, the lightning cracking in the background, the thunder roaring in the distance, and two heavily armed armies clashing directly head-on to each other. You can't make that stuff up. But Tong's generals and his soldiers, as we know from their reaction to his speech, all hated Jie and all loved their leader. So of course, Tong's soldiers fought bravely. On the contrary, though, Emperor Jie's troops, on one hand, seeing the sheer power of the Shang army, and upon realizing that they didn't also love their ruler and did not wish to die for him, did not listen to any of his commands. And soon all the soldiers and leaders of Emperor Jie's army either surrendered or fled the field. But the generals weren't the only ones that escaped and fled, because Emperor Jie himself escaped and fled, but Shang forces quickly captured him, deposed of him, and brought the Xia dynasty to a crashing end. Eventually, surprisingly too actually, Emperor Jie was not executed. He was instead exiled and would eventually die of a natural illness, and Tang would succeed him as the paramount king, marking the very beginning of the Shang dynasty. Tang of Shang's reign as the paramount king was regarded by a good one by the ancient Chinese. He did everything that a good king does. He lowered taxes, and he lowered the conscription rate of soldiers. His influence began to spread all the way throughout the Yellow River, and even reaching outlying tribes that the Xia had never had control over, such as the Di and the Qiang, and he made them both vassal states. He also finally established Anyang as the new capital of ancient China. He built a palace called Xia She to memorialize the Xia dynasty. And in the first five years of his reign, though, there were several droughts. Ironic that the Xia started with immense flooding, but the next dynasty started with immense droughts. These droughts wreaked havoc on the common citizen of the Shang dynasty. While once they were being flooded and drowned, they were now being starved to death. So what does Tang do? Well, he orders that gold coins be made and distributed to all the poor families. But no, not to necessarily buy food or to salvage their businesses, but no. Because the reason these coins were given is that most of the poor families were forced to sell their children because of the economic depression brought on by these droughts. Yes. These gold coins were intended for families to use as a way to buy their own children back. The ancient world never fails to horrify. And here we go. The Shang dynasty is afoot. 
But while Tong of Shang was a great ruler by all metrics, his precedent did not really last. The rulers of the Shang fell into the same trap of those of the Xia dynasty. They all got drunk, they did not care for their people much, and loved their harem. And also, as a quick side note, the subjects of the Shang were most likely literally still in the Stone Age. And let me emphasize, literally. Metals were only really used by the upper echelons of society. And yes, the Shang were different than from the Xia in many ways, and in one respect, is regarding their foreign policy. Because the Shang were much, much, much more aggressive and bloodthirsty in terms of their own foreign policy. And more interestingly, and something that we'll definitely get into more in the future, the Shang were much more aggressive in their spirituality. Engaging in mass human sacrifices and other things that we have documents of. Oh, and no, not just documents. We have physical evidence. And yes, like all other dynasties, the Shang would face issues from outside their borders and within their borders alike, and would struggle to thrive. And that's where I will leave it this week. Next week, we will look at the Shang dynasty in its entirety, what they did, and what really, though, undid them. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week on the History of China.